Well, hello, Door of Hope. It's so good to see all of you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm weirdly nervous. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sylvester. I appreciate your confidence. Um, <clears throat> I actually had to do it in the middle of the sabbatical, had to do a, um, a conference that I was committed to at, at uh, Cannon Beach Conference Center, and it was like no teaching for three months, and then I had to do 12 sermons in one week. And uh, that first one, I was like, I don't remember how to preach. I, it, was, it was a train wreck. And then I was looking to my mom for encouragement, and she goes, it kind of was a train wreck. You were, <laughs> you were, you were off. <laughs> so if I'm off today, uh, I haven't done this in a while. So, um, well, it's good to be back. If you, you know, this is a very, very real uh, possibility. In fact, not a possibility, it's probably an actuality that there are some of you that are new to Door of Hope over the summer and have no idea who I am. Uh, so, my name is Josh White, and I'm the founding and teaching pastor here, and I've been on a, on four and a half month sabbatical, uh, and I am so uh, encouraged by everything that I've heard from the staff and from the elders of just the way that God has been moving um, in this community uh, through this break, and just that beautiful reminder that uh, this is Jesus's church, uh, and that um, you know, there's a, a great amount of pride for Darcy and I just to know that the community is is continued to gather around Jesus and. Uh, um, and the teaching, I've been catching up on the teaching, and uh, man, just it's so cool to hear multiple voices filling in uh, in the pulpit, and um, everyone did an amazing job. So uh, it's good to be back. I, I, all I can say about my sabbatical is it was, it was awesome. It was, it was long, and I uh, um, did a lot of travel. Uh, my family, we went to uh, Europe. Uh, we went to um, Tuscany. I'm actually I just wanted you guys to know, and if anyone wants to go with us, we're going to plant a church in Crete, Greece. <laughs> I'm not, but I, I would. <laughs> uh, we went to Crete in Italy, and it was so fun. Our son Henry uh, came home from L.A. Um, and was with me for the first two months of the sabbatical, so we got a lot of great time with Hank, and then he, then he left us again, this time for Manhattan. I mean, the kids just since he's been out of high school, a year in LA and now straight to New York City. He's not messing around. So uh, really a lot of great time with the family, with Darce, and a lot of time to just, honestly, I just didn't even realize how exhausted and tired I was um, before the sabbatical. Um, I think most pastors coming out of, uh, out of COVID uh, definitely felt the, the weight and the exhaustion of all of it, but I feel refreshed and healthy and just excited to be here with you guys today. I'm, that's all I'm going to say, because I, what I didn't know when Evan asked me, uh, like, hey, so you don't have to try to figure out what to preach when yet we're, we're going to start First Peter, so that you can just jump in, and it'll give you time to get acclimated and, and uh, re-engaged. I think this was some kind of weird joke um, to mess with me, because I said, I'm like, yeah, I'll preach on the 4th, because I'll be back. I didn't look at the text that was assigned, and... They put every hard passage in First Peter into this text that I'm going to teach you today. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about submission to government, submission to masters, and, and submission to husbands. It's going to be wonderful. Um, and uh, it's just called Shut Up and Do What You're Told in the Name of Jesus. <laughs> it really does cover all of those things. I just started laughing. I'm like, are you kidding me? I really have to talk about this. Uh, well, we are going to jump into this. And I listened to Josh Wilder's message from last week, um, this morning, actually, while I was preparing. And man, what a beautiful, beautiful message. Josh actually goes back. Uh, he was in a, in a study group with me before Door of Hope even began. Uh, and it was just, I, I don't know, it was just really encouraging to just hear what a powerful word uh, was spoken, especially just his emphasis upon what does it mean to have this identity in Jesus. And that's going to be a continued theme that we're going to talk about today. And it is a challenging text, but we need to keep it in its proper context of, of the gospel and what the gospel is about. Because the world has a lot of ideas that it wants us to grab a hold of when it comes to our understanding of freedom. And freedom in the secular age is defined by 
our freedom to do what we want and to define ourselves as we see fit. Everyone, it's like the book of Judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, that we have, become, we have become a world where everyone is their own God. And because of that, the divine order, you know, you hear in science the, the term the natural order of things. I would say the natural order of things is actually the divine order of things has been turned upside down because now there are all these little demigods, you and I, um, saying we have our own order for things. Um, and it's not uh, a shock that the world is a mess because of that. The freedom that the world promotes is actually a freedom that leads to unbelievable slavery. And we see the impacts of that slavery all around us. The freedom that the gospel offers is a completely different thing. And it is a freedom that is determined by our submission. And submission is not an easy word. I'm a person, I'm not a, by nature a rule follower. I mean, I'm, that's why I probably I love radical grace because Jesus is the end of the law. And I'm really grateful for that because I tend to be a lawbreaker. Um, and I mean, I can't even park the right direction on the street. And my wife goes crazy over that. Like, why do you park the wrong direction? I'm like, because nobody said anything. She's like, I said something. I, I don't know. It may be because you said it. I want to park the wrong direction now. This is the natural tendency of the human heart is to break rules. Um, and Jesus has come to set us free, but that freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want. It's the freedom um, that is discovered through our full identity in him, through our surrender to him. And so there's going to be three things that he does, that, that Peter focuses in on. The outworking of this new identity in Christ uh, is, is going to bring about a, a change in how we function as a community, that our surrender, our submission, is actually the key to sanctification as well as witness. Um, and I think that this is really important. In fact, I would argue, actually, submission is the first step in, in true worship. It is the surrender of oneself to God's rule over our lives. I want to just start with this, this slide. And I want to set up with these, these three passages that I think are going to be very helpful for us. The first one is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Love is a... Is a is an overused word, but it's still the most important word in our language. It, it is the deepest longing of the human heart. But as Christians, we have to define love more in a more focused way. Grace is probably even a more robust understanding for that is that beautiful reality of love without contingency. But I would, I would argue that love is manifested in the Christian life through a total surrender of oneself to the rule of Christ, which is manifested in our willingness to lay down our lives for one another. In fact, the only evidence that we truly are followers of Jesus is not by how much we read or how, much, how often we go to church or all the ways that we serve or the things that we do for Christ. It is what Christ is doing in and through us and that is evidenced by how we love one another. The Christian life is meant to be lived out in community. So it is natural that we would begin here that the submission to Christ inevitably leads to a mutual submission to one another. That we are more concerned about the welfare of those around us. And our neighbor, love God and love neighbor, are, are interwoven realities. God is glorified when we love him and our love for him is always manifested by our love for one another. We can't say we love God and not love our neighbor. And so Paul brilliantly in his beautiful letter to the, to the church in Ephesus is building the same kind of argumentation that Peter is. Identity in Christ leads to submission. It's driven by this submission, which is really the essence of true worship. The, the second um, passage that I think is important for us to understand is Jesus as the example of submission. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was submitted to the will of the Father. He submitted himself as the representative man who would take upon himself the brokenness of, hu of humanity, giving birth to an entirely new race, really. A new humanity, for if anyone be in Christ, all things are new. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, surrendered to the will of the Father. Remember when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he prayed, Father, if there's any way that this cup could be taken from me. He was scared to die. He was scared to be tortured to death. He didn't want to experience that. The natural tendency of, of the, the, the human desire, the very natural desire to protect life was being, was being tested to the ultimate point. Like Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Jesus here is saying, Father, like, is there another way that we can achieve it? But what does he say? But not my will be done, thy will be done. That really shows the essence of the difference between the freedom that the world presents, which is, is my will be done, your will, you do it. You are your own God. But the gospel freedom comes through, not my will, but thy will be done. I love this, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. What is that? The last shall be what? First. And Jesus truly became last. For we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin, what? Became sin. One of the most mysterious passages in scripture that Christ did not come to simply identify with our humanity, he came to identify with our brokenness, with our lostness with the disease that is sin, that destroys and wreaks havoc upon the world. Jesus came and dealt with that once and for all. We are told that he is victorious over sin, death, um, in the dominions of darkness. So he humbled himself, becoming boy. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. You notice Paul's beautiful call, have this mind in you, the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ, he said. So our identity in Christ shows that Jesus himself is the example, the Son of God, the one who spoke in the universe left into existence, that there is a divine order to things. The Son submitted himself to the will of the Father. And that submission took him all the way to the cross. And this becomes our pattern. And notice that through that death, the good death, Jesus' absolute and total exaltation over all things, the Father's stamp of approval upon his total surrender. I only do those things which please the Father. I only speak those things which please the Father. This is the, an understanding of what it means to be what God intended is to be a people that are defined by him. Finally, is that, is that me just, is that, my beard's gotten big and unruly. I was like, what is that sound? It's just my facial hair and I am sorry. <laughs> John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home within him. One of the things I want us to understand as we talk about submission, is that when we surrender our lives to the will of the Father, when we surrender ourselves in totality to Jesus, and that submission is played out um, in our love and care and submission to one another, what we become is a household of grace. I will make my home within you. When two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. When Jesus is in the midst, the thing that follows is always peace. And what the world needs more than ever right now is the witness of a peaceful presence. Because in all of its restlessness, in all of its anxiousness, in all of its anxiety, we are called to be a people that know as exiles and pilgrims um, that this, the best is yet to come and we have the opportunity to be witness, bear witness to the best. That is witness to the very presence of Christ himself. It is through our submission that we become the dwelling place of God. And a refusal to submit to God means that we are, we are actually choosing an existence that God knows nothing about. We're choosing an existence of nothingness. For God is the source of all that is real and all that is true. I'll get into that a little more later. Okay, I, so I just want us to think about these three passages as we move into the text because this is how we are going to understand submission. The first thing that we need to understand about submission as we jump into the text is that submission is the key to freedom. Look what Peter writes. 
Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, Josh did a wonderful job of explaining this last week, of this, this idea that the, this world is not our home, not as it is. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming. The best is yet to come. That we are not to be, we're not to escape the world, but we are not to be of it. We're not to be like it. We are to witness to a different kind of kingdom because we have a different king. <laughs> and he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desi desires, which wage war against your soul. Well, it's a fascinating thing to command. Um, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. We always have to keep this, uh, this passage. The, the pursuit of holiness is a powerful uh, biblical concept, but the very tendency of the human heart that will lead us right back into the dominion of the world and the dominion of darkness is to believe that the Christian life is about sinning less. And I would argue that it is about loving more, not sinning less, because the more you love, like Jesus loved, the less you will sin. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. And the moment we move our Christianity into, into some sort of kind of therapeutic moralism, where it becomes all about, um, uh, what I like to say, it, it, it becomes about um, external uh, representations of, it's our selective sanctification, if you will. Uh, where we are trying to present to the world an ideal that we, we ourselves can't keep. I think that the key to understanding um, how we have victory um, over the dominions of darkness and the realities of the sinful nature that is within us, the mixture, as I've always called it, the fact that even as born-again Christians who have the Holy Spirit within them, even the things that we do in the power of God is still, there is still sin involved in it. It's just a reality. That's why it is so important that we understand the centrality of the cross and hold to that tenaciously because the cross is the answer to that because Jesus defeated sin, past, present, and future. It died with him on the cross. Sin has been forgiven, but it doesn't mean that forgiven sin can't wreak havoc in our lives. And so there is cause and effect. But how do we abstain from sinful desires? Well, I think, actually, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the first few messages because the key is all wrapped up in the identity in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that, that reality of Christ in us, uh, it's what I call the, the, the difference. Um, Martin Luther referred to it as, a, as uh, the most important thing in the Heidelberg Disputation uh, which is, I think, Luther's best work. It, it is an explanation of, of the difference between a theology of the cross and what he calls a theology of glory. And he's not talking about the glory of God. He's talking about the theology of the glory of man, which is all about um, our, our attempts to live up to something that we can't, actually condemning ourselves even more deeply by the fact that we're, instead of trusting in the finished work of Christ, we're trusting in our own ability uh, to be good in our own minds. Uh, and that's, that is a, a very, very big problem. So what I would say is you go back to John chapter 6, 29, when, he, when Jesus was asked, what must we do to do the work of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I always said there are two different kinds of action that we can take as Christians. There is what I call an active futility, where, where we are just simply trying to, um, we're, it's, it's all about behavior modification. Churches are masterful at behavior modification, and it's why people are leaving the church in droves, in my opinion. I think that you can, because behavior modification leads by nature, there, there's two, there's two there's, I think, two dangerous routes you can go. Behavior modification, which is just leads to legalism, we do, Christian, a good Christian doesn't watch our films, doesn't cuss, you know, shows up every Sunday to church, gives regularly. We have a list of things that we feel comfortable with that defines what a good Christian is. The other extreme is 
you know, it's all grace, and I'm just going to live as I want. So you have liberalism, which ultimately leaves Christ. Christ becomes an unwelcome guest in his own house. He's just like a, a good moral teacher that we can learn some lessons from. Or we have the, the legalistic church where Christ, once again, is an unwelcome guest in his own house because the focus is upon behavior modification rather than the Christ who is with us, dwelling amongst us, in the center of everything. And so I, I love this. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the work of God that you believe in God whom he has sent. Active futility is behavior modification. The gospel is active passivity. It's active passivity. It is the daily surrender of my life. This is why Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. Our daily presentation of our lives at the foot of the cross, it means that I am getting out of the way so that Jesus can live in and through me. And that active passivity is not doing nothing. It's surrendering to the Spirit's guidance. It's the, the theme of what, uh, what the elders and what the staff have been focused on. It's about going deeper into our identity in Christ, knowing that we are loved. Nothing motivates us to do anything if we don't believe on our worst day that God is crazy about us. Nothing will motivate me to, to do the right thing if it's just out of a sheer desire to be obedience. Obedience to Christ is a surrender to him and allowing him to be responsible for me, allowing him to work through me. I always thought obedience would be about Jesus getting rid of my mixture. What I've come to realize is that obedience is allowing Jesus to work in and through me in spite of my mixture, to let him be responsible for the good and the bad parts of me, that his presence might be seen in and through me. And the more that I believe I am loved and the more that I enter into that, that, um, that act of love toward others, the submission to one another, because we are submitted to Christ, what I find is that my life is changed. My sanctification does begin because submission is the key to real freedom. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Well, what is the good deeds that they're seeing? The pagans don't care how much they read. They don't care how much they pray. The thing that will inspire the pagans to believe that prayer actually means something or that the word that they have studied and gather around or the meals that they share mean something is because they see them loving in a way that is not normal to the world. And I think that this is why Jesus said they will know you're my disciples by your Bible studies? No, by your love for one another. All of the things that we do as a church, the prayer, the study, the teaching of the word, the singing of songs is to proclaim to the world that it is loved and that we are, we are living witnesses to the fact that we recognize we're loved and we are inviting others into that love. And so when Peter, just like Paul, is telling us, he, Peter, I am sure, is thinking back to Jesus' own words, they'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on, his, on the day that he visits us. So now he gets into the classic governmental text. And listen, there is a, I was just reading today in um, the paper, kind of, I always try to peruse like, Lord, what is happening in the world that maybe um, you're trying to speak something specifically to your church. And the one thing that is for sure happening and the thing that exhausted me more than anything during the pandemic was the massive political, man, this thing is just live today. I don't know what is going on. I'm so sorry. Um, was, the, was the absolute division of our nation politically. Um, and the church was not immune to this, especially in a city like Portland. I, I, I felt like the first year I was just like called to be a referee between conservative parents and their liberal kids that both attend Door of Hope. And some of you are responsible for dragging me into that nightmare. You're like, I think my mom's a Nazi. I think my kid's Antifa. I'm like, I don't know. I think both of you need to be nice to one another. <laughs> I wanted to say exactly what I said the title of the message. Shut up and do what you're told. Love one another. Darn it. What's wrong with us? Why are we at war with one another? Where it's like, the, the one side, we're like, we've got to get away from this woke culture. We need to bring America back. 
yeah, America. And I'm like, and then there's the other side, like, every, you're all a bunch of fascists. I'm like, man, we belong to another kingdom. And Jesus is not an American. <laughs> he is the creator of the universe. And he's the ruler of this world. And God is not actually interested. From my vantage point, you show me one passage in the New Testament that supports that God is about nations. He used a nation to bring forth his redemptive purposes, which was Israel. And Israel failed miserably at that. And it was through Israel. And God is incredibly masterful at utilizing the absolute failures of our lives to override it in his sovereignty and weave it somehow into his redemptive purposes. And through the failure of Abraham and Israel comes the Messiah. And Jesus is the final word on God's plan for this world. And he is not about God's, you know, it's the classic Bob Dylan song, We've Got God on Our Side. It was his protest, it was his protest song against war that like we think that we're right for killing them because we're, we're a godly country. If we were to base uh, God's favor upon a country, it would be based upon where people are meeting Jesus the most, most fully and in the greatest numbers, right? Because didn't Jesus say that in the Great Commission, go to the ends of the world and make disciples? And where are more disciples being made than anywhere else in the world right now? Do you know where it's at? It's China. So is God pro-China? No, he's pro-people. He's a God who saves people. And so these political battles um, are, are, are really dangerous. And I think that sometimes verses like here, and then once again in Romans 13, uh, can be all about, all about sort of nationalism. And it's not about that. In fact, I would argue that Jesus, nor Paul, nor Peter had any intrigue whatsoever in politics. None. Their purpose in stating what's stated right here, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor, is the emperor good guy, bad guy? Mixture. <laughs> and probably not awesome. <laughs> That's a Gary Brashear's trick. Whenever he asks that question, you just don't answer because he's tricking you. Um, <laughs> He says, submit yourself to, for, your, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So the, the government is in place to create parameters by which human beings can flourish. And when it does it right, that, that law should actually create the parameters where we can live as freely as possible. That should be the goal of any kind of de democracy. But the purpose of the biblical writers calling us to be good citizens is said, do whatever it takes to live as peaceably as possible wherever you are so that as many people can hear the gospel as possible. And the moment we have an us against them mentality, like the problem in the church is those people out there, you know, it's the, it's, it's the, it's this, this, this agenda out there that's trying to override all that God intended in his good design. And we, and we, get, into these, we get into these cultural battles and, and all of a sudden the very people that we're supposed to bring the gospel to become our enemies. And Jesus said, listen, you being evil to his disciples know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And what Jesus is saying in that little passing statement, you being evil, is that there are only two kinds of people in the economy of Christ. Evil people that say yes to him and evil people that say no to him. And once we come to the cross, it puts us all on an even playing field. And I think that this is, this is uh, something that is so important. This is why we should be good citizens. This is why we should care about where we live. We didn't get to pick where we, where we live. We have incredible freedoms as Americans. And, and, and the war over our country that battles, I'm not concerned with where you're political. I'm grateful. I'm, I'm proud of, where, of the country that I live in. And I think it's shameful um, the ways that we cut one another down and battle over ideological, especially as Christians, ideologies, uh, 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 all, these, all these ideologues 
realities and these, these battles that are happening that is turning the church into an ever-increasing irrelevant force. Luckily, I know the end of the story and nothing will, will, will stop Jesus from accomplishing what he's going to accomplish. And the church, for better or for worse, will continue to be the vehicle by which he does that. That's why Chesterton was so brilliant when he said, the greatest argument for, Christi- uh, for Christianity is sin, which means the greatest argument against Christianity will always be Christians. Because sin is at play. And the more we understand our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, the more we will end up being gracious toward one another because I would argue that the, when we start treating everybody like an enemy is what that showing is that there is no submission in our lives um, because submission to Christ means we will be conduits of love so he says for your submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority well that makes sense because look what he, look what he goes on to say for it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's interesting that Peter uses the word good in the way that he does because Jesus, remember what um, Jesus said to the young rich ruler? Why do you call me good? There is none who are good except God. And what is Jesus saying to that young rich ruler in that moment? You're not good and I'm God. That's what he's saying. Why did Paul say, there is none who do good? No, not one. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. But now Peter's telling us to do good. I believe that Peter is not confused and he's not contradicting Paul, but recognizes if we were to listen, look at the beginning of, of 1 Peter, we would understand that the identity of Christ, our identity in submission, surrender to him, means that God in by the Holy Spirit, who is good, perfectly good, now has the freedom to work through us, these glitchy, mixed vehicles, to bring forth his good into the world in spite of us. And this is a beautiful reality that we have in the church. So we should do good. And isn't it funny that when people try, how do people define freedom today? Because notice what he goes on to say, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, live as free people. Well, that's everything that our country is constantly claiming. This is the whole, the claim is that our freedoms are being jeopardized. When Roe versus Wade happened while I was on sabbatical, thank God, (laughs) good work, Ian. I'm like glad I was in Crete for that one. Um, But what was the constant statement in in the press? Our freedoms were going backwards. Our freedoms are being taken from us. Because freedom in a secular mind, and I promise you, you and I are shaped by this age. We are incredibly shaped by this age. Our idea of freedom is nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Nobody has the right to tell me how I should live or what I can do with my body or what I do with my time. And so that true freedom in, in the secular mindset is actually anarchy. It's a, there is no law. I am a law unto myself. But where does that actually get us? What I would argue is that kind of mentality around what freedom is, is what leads to absolute enslavement. For Jesus said, whatever is not of faith is sin. And he also said that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, which means that the only place where real freedom can be found is actually in our submission to the king, which look what he says, live as free people, but do, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. That seems like a paradoxical statement that our freedom is dependent upon our total submission to King Jesus, which allows us then to enter into uh, the world in which we are. This is, and I would argue that what Peter is saying, think about, think about a Christian reading this in, in a dictator, in a country that's a dictatorship. Like put the lens on, it's hard for us to read this the scripture in any other context than what we know as Americans. And we're just, we are so privileged <laughs> that we, we, 
We can't see it. We're like, it like, oh, I don't like that. You know, they said that one of the things that the Jesus movement was marked by was this incredible return. Um, God does this incredible movement in the early 70s amongst all these disenchanted hippies. And, and some of you, um, uh, because I see enough silver hair in here, probably got saved during the Jesus movement. And, and it was a radical movement of God. It was a, a legitimate revival. It was a, it was a counterculture within a counterculture. The churches were not the place where the revival were happening. The, church, the revival was happening amongst all these kids that had been like, you know, sowing their wild oats, sleeping with whoever they wanted, living communally, doing drugs to try to find some kind of freedom, some sort of enlightenment, and they found that it was empty. It didn't bring what it promised. And God in that time, in this moment, where there's this massive uprising against what, were, what was considered kind of like this moralistic society. We're not gonna pretend to be something we're not anymore. We're gonna be our own people because we're enslaved by our Christian heritage and our moralism. And there's this movement against kind of everything that America sort of stood for. And most people that were an older generation, you know, the baby boomers' parents were horrified by the hippie movement. Like, cut your hair, put some shoes on, take a bath, get a job. You know, this was the kind of reaction. And it was amongst those kids that God does this incredible move. But the problem that we have with all movements is that movements come and go, um, is that there was a return to Jesus, a radical uh, return to the scriptures. There was a, there was a, a, a deep desire for holiness I mean, this is when you see video footage of the Jesus movement, you'll see kids like burning their Led Zeppelin records and, you know, I mean, and then what do we get left with? Like, what do we have then? We have nothing. <laughs> we like, like, down with Led Zeppelin, yes for Maranatha. <laughs> Getting rid of all these things. But you know what they didn't get rid of? Their distrust of authority. And what it gave birth to was the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, and we're still products of it, which is that church is here to satisfy your needs. It's what created the celebrity pastor culture. It, it created this idea that I come to church for me, for my own growth, and it's all about me. So it's amazing, for as beautiful as the Jesus movement was, it was, it was very, very distrustful of authority. The Calvary Chapel movement, I mean, Chuck left Chuck Smith, for those of you who aren't familiar, Cal Calvary was kind of at the center of it. Chuck Smith was a part of a mainline denomination. He left that denomination because he did not want to be under the authority of elders because he thought all they did was hinder the work of God because God calls a man and gives him a vision and then people follow the man. That may be true, but I'm pretty sure the scripture is pretty clear that elders are to be in place because we are mixture. And it's not surprising that that model led has led and continues to lead to the moral failings of pastors all over our country. Um, and so it is important, submission to authority is one of the ways that we actually are protected from our tendency toward enslavement, because that's what sin does. So when I, when I do not obey <laughs> my government, what, what am I, I'm looking, I, all, all of a sudden you pay the consequence. You don't pay your taxes, you're gonna get in trouble unless you're my dad. <laughs> you know, there's, there's consequences and there's a reason for those things because we want, we want equity, but it, it's fascinating to me that, that so often our idea is like, I'm not gonna do this because of this. I have all kinds of justifications why I speed. You know, there's, there's all, but the fact is, is that when I, my wife points it out, it's like, you're, when you start breaking the law, you're just speeding, it's like then you're stressed out all the time because what? Because you, you're worried you're going to what? Get caught. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's an enslavement that happens where there's a freedom in parameters. Um, and it's, it's a real thing. I think that this is a, a powerful thing that we need to understand. It is the key to freedom. For God's will is that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant. Doing good is being surrendered to the one who is good, that he might work through you by his spirit. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. This is the most terrifying thing. Adjusting to freedom is one of the most important aspects of Christian living. Because adjusting to freedom means this. If you were a slave to sin before, and now Jesus has set you free, the moment you have freedom, actually, there's now responsibility. 
It's what Chesterton said. If there's one way to go, Jesus, that means there's a thousand ways to fall. And if it wasn't possible to make an absolute disaster of our Christ-given freedom, we would not consistently be warned, as here Paul actually warns two times in Galatians, do not use your freedom to serve the flesh. Don't be like the children of Israel who have God's chosen, he's set free, he's brought them out of slavery, and then what do they do? They want to go back to it. And it, instead of enjoying the promised land, which is the victorious life now, they just wander around in the wilderness perishing. This is why Alan Redpath famously said, the vast majority of Christians have this written over their lives, saved soul and wasted life. Because it's a misuse of spiritual freedom. There's nothing you can do if you've truly been born again, you've truly given your life to Jesus and trusted in him and then go back to a life of sin. First of all, you will have no confidence that you were ever really saved, um, even though you might be. And the fact is, is that you can be and live a disastrous life. I think, you know, you're saved. This is what I would say when people ask me that, like, I went back to this. I'm like, yeah, but what was it like when you went back to sin after getting saved? You became very aware of the sin. I know what it was like to sin before I was saved. And I didn't really think much about it. To go back to it, there's immediately, it's like, why am I so miserable? Because you know the truth and you're fighting against that truth. Um, and I think that, and if you don't have any conviction and you're just living how you want and living contrary to the spirit of God, then it's important, as Paul said, to examine ourselves, to make sure that Christ indeed is in us and we are in him. And one of the ways that we know that is actually through our mutual surrender to one another because the evidence that we are born again is often not seen um, by navel gazing. It's actually other people seeing Christ in you as you live in humility in community. It's important. Uh, just a personal story on, on this is I had a meeting with the elders the other night and, um, and just even the dynamic of figuring out roles and, and what does it look like? And all of it comes down to just this. this pa is, I think it's appropriate that this is the passage I teach coming back in because the beauty of being submitted to the elders at Door of Hope and submitted to you as a community is the thing that will create the most freedom for me. And when you do it, it creates the most freedom for you because this is what God intended for us. And we want to do what God intended. Secondly, there is submission at the heart, um, is at the heart of sanctification. Look what it says here, slaves in reverent fear of God. If you want to ask, um, me to continue to press on this idea that the writers of the New Testament were not political, this is a great example. Paul is not pro-slavery. He just, he's recognizing this is a part of the culture in which he lives and What's important, or excuse me, Peter is not pro-slavery, either is Paul, and they both say the same thing. Wherever you were saved, thrive as a Christian in whatever state you're in, because this is, we're just exiles here. This is a part of their cultural reality. He isn't saying we need to up, have a revolt against this. Uh, in fact, the revolt should be love, which will, by nature, the more people come to Christ, will turn over those falls. That's why legislating morality doesn't, isn't very effective. Um, it, but when, when people begin to believe in the core of their being that this is wrong <laughs> on a cultural level uh, because there's been transformation by the gospel. I mean, the gospel is what created Western civilization. The very thing that threatens the gospel um, is also created by the gospel. The ability, uh, I mean, everything in the West owes its existence to the church. It's just a fact of history. Um, but I love that slaves in reverent, reverent fear of God submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer your doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Notice here, it kind of goes back to the submission to the Roman Empire. Did the early Christians violate the law of the Roman Empire? They did. The, these are not statements that say that you were never to resist, but how they resisted was not by a violent uprising. 
That's not, Jesus didn't do that, and nor did the early church. The early church, when the laws of the land violated their Christian standing, they, they broke those laws, but they accepted the law of the land's consequences. That is a different kind of rebellion, and it's much more, this is one of my biggest critiques, honestly, of the Black Lives Matters movement, was, was the, the, the raised fist is a symbol, has always been a symbol of uprising against oppressors. What does one do with a fist? You punch with it. What is the symbol of, of Christianity? It is the pierced hand, an open hand that embraces both the victim and the victimizer. It's why the kingdom of God is so upside down. And it's why I think that, that the movements of actually Gandhi and Martin Luther King were far more in line with the gospel, which was this law is wrong. We actually oppose it, but we actually accept the consequences. There was a passive, notice it was a passive resistance. It was a passive activity. It was that we are going to stand unified in love and we are going to expose the dark by not by bringing violence, but by actually sh allowing the violence. It's what Jacques Ellul said. He was like, Christians cannot afford to be wolves. Everybody in the world wants to be a wolf. Who will show the world what the sacrificial lamb is like if the church stops being a living sacrifice for the world? What a powerful statement. And so what, what this is not a commentary on Peter's thoughts about slavery. This is, this is Peter's concern as all Christians and the, the apostles' concern was, is what must we do to live a full life of witness in whatever place we are at? And when people actually do that, people begin to be taken care of. So why Rene Girard said, if everyone turned the other cheek, there'd be no cheeks to slap. And I think that this is, so that the focus is always on the gospel. It's on the gospel. I love this. It says, to this you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. One of the signs that your ego has not surrendered to Jesus is your desire to defend yourself against any accusation. You know that desire? It's like there's a desire, like I'm wait a minute, I'm right, and you're wrong. And that desire to defend self is also a picture often of our, of our inability to, is, to trust that Jesus is our defense and that our best, I'm, I am the king of fast talking when I'm unhappy with something. And this, this is such a convicting passage. He did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who? To his father, to him who judges justly. Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world. I came to save it. We live in a time where everyone's crying for justice, but it's a justice that leads to bitterness because we want, it's, it's a scapegoat mechanism. We want the perpetrator to pay for the woes that we're experiencing. But that's not, that's not the Christian life. Our submission is the heart of sanctification. Our surrender to Jesus, we are sanctified actually through our suffering for his sake. Not our suffering there is suffering that is caused by our own stupidity and our misuse of our God-given freedom. That Jesus, has, Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about what you'll eat or drink um, it, so that you can just go do whatever you want. He, if, you're, if you are going against his, his authority over your life, there's a lot you should be worried about. <laughs> no, this is a call for us to look to Christ who himself is the God of the universe, and yet he did not defend himself against his accusers. And he accepted what he did is he actually entered into that scapegoat mechanism, the violence of a world that's constantly pointing the finger, and his way of actually defeating that enemy of hatred and sin in the dominions of darkness was by was by stepping in and allowing himself to be the truly innocent victim um, on behalf of the very people that were hurting him. Their salvation was dependent upon him being willing to take the blame. 
And I think that that is not an easy task for the church. Our submission to one another, to carry one another's burdens, to enter into one another's brokenness, to allow ourselves to be dirtied by the sins of one another, to be able to confess freely to one another. This is the key to sanctification. Your sanctification isn't by praying more or reading more or going to church more. Your sanctification is is your deep desire to be so identified with Jesus that you have to spend more time with people. You have to read more. You have to pray more. I can't not do those things because I know in whom I have believed and am confident that he is at work in and through me. See what I'm saying? That we focus on the activities of the Christian life rather than the core. And I love that Josh reminded us of that, that powerful truth last week. He said, he entrusts himself to him, he judges justly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Christ is your righteousness and sin has died with him. And the reason we continue to ask for forgiveness for sins that are already forgiven is to humbly remind ourselves that the only reason we're able to do what we do is because everything that needs to be done has already been done by him. And that is the power of the gospel. And look what he says, by his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is the good, is allowing the only one who is good to be responsible for our lives. This is the heart of our sanctification. So how often are we trying to spin our wheels to get out of the situation we're in instead of just being obedient to Jesus in whatever it is we're in? Because some of you, your work feels like a, a slave-master relationship. And all of us can have that. We don't, I'm a very free-spirited person. I don't like people telling me what to do. I tend to be a maverick. But I'm so unhappy when I isolate myself in my own ego. And I am happiest when I enter into relationship with people and discover this is the power of the gospel. This is the key to sanctification. It is my submission not only to God, but to you. Finally, Submission is the door to intimacy. And this is, I'm going to, this is not a message on marriage. I want, this is a message on submission. Um, but I want to I hit on this because it's important and it's here. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word. Notice, what, once again, what is the goal of the submission? Witness. It's witness. If they do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Um, by the way, um, women, we're going to pass a basket around. If you have fine jewelry on, we'd like you to put the jewelry. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> I, I'd like to be the one responsible that, like, that's fine. That hairstyle is way too elaborate. <laughs> That necklace is gaudy. <laughs> Just where it's gonna, we're going to have the burn barrel. We're going to do what the Jesus movement did all over again. Um, rather, it should be that of your inner self and the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I, I think it's so easy. We have to remember that, that there is always, a John Stott said it best, when you read passages that are speaking, we forget that these letters were written at a particular time in history. And there are cultural truths that, that are, speak to the time, and then there are universal truths within those cultural truths. The point isn't for me or anyone <laughs> uh, on the staff to define what is elaborate, what is too much jewelry. I mean, I probably have more jewelry on right now than many of the women in this church. Um, so, uh, so and, and you're not going to take my ring away. Um, so, but I am willing to submit to you if you really think it's too much. Um, no, the point is, is, is what is stated. What is it that you're presenting? Is, is, is what you're trying to present is this, is this unique individual whose ego will not be controlled by anyone? not be controlled by anyone. Josh used an amazing example last week um, of seeing a little girl at the park that was wearing a, a t-shirt that said, um, I, don't need a, I don't need a savior or I don't need a rescuer or something like that. And it, you know, it's like, it's this kind of, it, it's, it's Disney right now. It's a complete reworking. We got to get rid of like, women don't need men to save them. 
Well, I would argue everybody needs a man to save them. <laughs> that man just happens to be the man God, Jesus. And the world needs a savior, desperately. There is no salvation unless there is a bottoming out, if you will. We need to always move back toward the language of, of, the, of the addict. We have come to the end of ourselves and we recognize that our only hope is in Jesus. So this submission, I love this, this, this call is really, what are you defined by? Are you defined by the inner person? And the specific word to women, are you defined by, by your, there is so much pressure what do you think that, that young girls today are suffering from so much depression, surprise from spending hours and hours on TikTok, especially during, especially because all they're being presented is the world's definition of what beauty is. And it's always shifting. It's always, now there's like a new boss, body positivity movement and there's, there's all these different movements a million voices constantly telling you what you should look like, how you should dress. Which, when I was in California, I was shocked. I was just down there like a couple weeks ago I mean, it is becoming common. I saw young girls who clearly are getting, like, their lips plumped up. Like, both, we, saw one, we saw one woman, I'm like, both Darcy and I had the same thought. It's Kim Kardashian. We're like, nope, it's just one of her clones. Um, and, and, and it was a young, beautiful woman just already doing surgery, already altering herself to look a certain way that shows the, the world's obsession with externals and what what Peter is saying is like listen ladies that's not that is not what creates beauty what creates beauty is the life that is calmly confident in the person of Jesus and so that and I think that there's you know you can talk about modesty all those things but I just feel like it's a very dangerous thing to get into the into the weeds of of what exactly should someone dress like and there are plenty of churches that have tried to do that through history no this is not we're not interested in creating stepford wives i would be far more creeped out if all of you ladies dress exactly the same that would be weird and upsetting to me and i would not be the pastor here um <laughs> uh, rather it should be your inner self for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in god used to adorn themselves they submitted themselves to their husbands like sarah who obeyed abraham and called him her lord Wives, please call your husbands Lord. That's actually the real title of this message. Darcy, please. I need you to model that right now for the church. <laughs> What's the point of this? First of all, there is a divine order to things. And what does it go on to say here? I think this is important. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give away to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your lives. Live with your wives. Live with your wives does not mean you're in the house with them. Live with your wives means you're engaged because you can be in the same room with your wife and be an absolute stranger to her. Live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Also, a very, I'm so happy I got this verse today. Um, all I can say about this is it is what it is. Men are physically stronger and should protect women. I don't care what our culture says. And what is the call? It's not weaker intellectually. In fact, we are told there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Jesus showed the revelation of his own resurrection to a woman first. And she was the only one that seemed to actually handle it in stride. <laughs> Everyone else got weird. All the dudes got weird after that. It was all the women that were around the foot of the cross, they had more courage than any of the disciples. John is the only one that shows up. And he loved to refer to himself as the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> it's, once again, kind of weird, but it's in there. <laughs> I think what he's showing is that anyone who knows Jesus should view themselves that way. I, that's what I think the point is. But, but here's the, here's the, the picture is not women, you know, you need a guy because because you're weaker, you know, you're, you're less. No, divine order has nothing to do with equality. And I think, I think Bart said it best. And we're, gonna, we're gonna close out on this because really the focus of this is submission. And I believe that our mutual surrender, remember what I started with, submit to one another out of respect to the Lord is how Paul opens up his passage about marriage. Um, and I think when it says, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives, 
do wives, okay, so the command to men to um, love their wives, it doesn't, he doesn't command the wives to love, uh, uh, to love their husbands. So do women not have to love their husbands? That's a stupid question, isn't it? But men, why do we not hear very often or very comfortable with wives submit to your husbands? Does that mean that there is no submission on our side? You can't be in a marriage with, marriage by its nature is, is mutual submission. You are giving up rights to be with the person. You now have to be responsible for this person. And, and mutual submission is the key. Now the key, why the emphasis is on, on, on women in these passages, I think it is, I think it is due to all the way back to the fall and the nature of how the fall happened and even the word that God spoke, your desire will be for your husband. The battle between the sexes is a reality that's been at play since the beginning of time. And that's the challenges that our modern culture has tried to eradicate all divine distinctions. There is no celebration of the feminine any more than there is of the masculine anymore. It's kind of a free-for-all. It's an, it's an insane free-for-all. And I think it actually does incredible damage to the beauty of what a woman has to bring to the world uh, in a deep desire to eradicate distinctions. All of a sudden, well, then this is problematic. It's one of the things that created an incredible dilemma for the feminist movement with the whole transgender movement. Because it seemed like some kind of violent, wait a minute, men are once again even taking over what it means to be a woman. I read an article, and then it was like, but you can't say that because that's not politically. It's insane. Let's just go with Scripture. I'm just going to go with Scripture, and I'm so excited for Darcy to call me Lord later today. (laughs) No, the focus is this. The order leads to this. Submission to your husband is not so your husband has control over you because the husband is immediately commanded to love. First shall be last, and the last shall be first. The husband is to lay down his life for his wife. So it is because of his willingness to, to serve his family and to serve his wife that she is willing to trust him with her life. And it is in that, that is the mutual surrender, which is, flows out of the central word, which is the most important word that is, as I said in the very beginning, the most abused word, which is love. So we don't have to be afraid of these passages. Yes, there are six passages in the New Testament that are highly controversial because of the age in which we live. But let me tell you that the tendency for us to look at passages around the relationship between men and women is we are far more shaped by the lens of our culture than we are by the lens of Scripture. And we should be critical about what culture tells us, not what Scripture tells us. I would say I am fully able to recognize that Scripture is difficult. There are passages that are hard, but I will never apologize for God's word, ever, because it is the sole authority. What do we have if we can't trust it? And how is this going to lead to anything but healthier marriages when there is truly two people surrendered to one another in agape love for the purpose of being a witness to King Jesus? How are you not going to actually have more intimacy when there is real submission at play? You see the beauty of all this? Submission is the key to real freedom. Submission is the heart of our sanctification. Submission is the door to true intimacy. And this is why we need, in closing, to remember this. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. He's not saying there's no difference. He's saying that we all positionally hold the same place when we are in Christ, for he is our identity and our submission begins to him. And it must be evidenced in our submission to one another. Amen? It's good to be back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And we do pray, Lord, I know that this is a hard word and we can become hung up on, on words and semantics. But I pray that the heart of this message came through clearly. That the surrendered life to you is the key 
to our victory. It is the key to our joy. It is the key to our ability to submit to one another, to suffer even for you. We learn more about your love in our suffering than we do in anything else. And I pray that we would be a church that would be sanctified, that we would be, be naked and exposed at the foot of the cross, and that we would come out of our hiding, and that we would come back to the one who loved us with a love that was revealed through your perfect death. And Jesus, when we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, how can we not be transformed? And I pray for people that are hurting here today, people that maybe are, have tried to live in that place of submission only to be burned by someone. Lord, this is just part of the experience. We, yes, it's true that people will take advantage of our service, but that doesn't give us the right to stop being what you have called us to be. For you said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So we submit to you, King Jesus, and we ask that in everything we do, that your goodness would be evidenced in and through our lives as we live in your love and we give that love away. It's in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks, guys. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.